I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Jennifer Ouellette. Jennifer Ouellette is the author of four popular science books for the general public, most recently, The Calculus Diaries, How Math Can Help You Lose Weight, Win in Vegas, and Survive a Zombie Apocalypse. She writes for many newspapers and magazines and currently maintains a blog called Cocktail Party Physics at Scientific American. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Jennifer Roulette. Welcome. Um, it's a delight to be here. Um, as you can tell from the title of my most recent book, uh, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I'm definitely a former math-phobe. I learned calculus as an adult, wrote a book about it, so I'm kind of a convert to the cause of math. Uh, I'm very excited to have uh, this uh, esteemed panel to debate a very interesting question. You know, how much does math matter? Uh, immediately to my right, we have Jay Matthews. Um, they held up his book, The War Against Dummy Math, uh, in, during the introduction. He's an education columnist and blogger for the Washington Post and the author of eight books, including the New York Times bestseller, Work Hard, Be Nice and, of course, The War Against Dummy Math. He's won several awards for education writing, including the Upton Sinclair Award as a beacon of light in the realm of education, and I hope someday someone says something that nice about me. <laughs> uh, sitting right next to him is Sarah Armstrong. She's been teaching math for over 20 years in Orange County at both the middle and high school level, so she's out there in the trenches. She's done work in curriculum development and served as a district trainer for K-8 mathematics, as a gifted and talented education coordinator, and she served on district communities for both the current state standards and the upcoming Common Core standards. And she's also asked me to make clear to everyone that she's speaking tonight personally so that any opinions that she expresses are, do not necessarily reflect the opinions of her district. And finally, <laughs> which I'm hoping means that she's going to be nice and controversial. <laughs> And finally, last but not least, we have Kaz uh, Pereira. He's co-founder of Growth Sector and has worked as a policy advocate, program director, and technical advisor to improve workforce opportunities for disadvantaged youth and adults. Currently, he is focused on developing pathways to engineering and STEM teaching for disadvantaged and disconnected Californians. So... I was, uh, we were chatting backstage, and I realized that one of the impetus, one of the uh, things that got this event organized was an op-ed that some of you may have read last year that appeared called, Is Algebra Necessary? Um, at the time, it, I, I referred to it as the op-ed that launched a thousand blog posts, uh, <laughs> because it really did spark an interesting debate. I was not a huge fan of the op-ed itself, but I felt that it, it opened up something to discussion, and a lot of what the discussion that came out of that blog post ended up being very useful, and I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about that tonight. So I'm going to start, we're going to talk about defining the problems, and then we're going to talk currently about the current landscape, you know, core standards, you know, different ideas that people have for how to solve this problem, and then we will, everybody will be able to like weigh in and talk about how what they think should be done. And I think a good place to open up for discussion as an illustration of the problem is something that I noticed today in my news feed. Um, in a recent episode of Fox and Friends, they had the hosts try and solve their children's math problems on air. And this was basically sixth, fifth, sixth grade math, and they couldn't do it. They could not find percentages. They could not do some very, very basic things. And it was presented as kind of a light joke, and I'm not 
I do not bring this up to, to knock this particular show because it is not uncommon. This is a common attitude. Um, most of us are embarrassed about our ability to, uh, to not be able to do math, and therefore we fall back on joking about how awful it is that we are. But we do not brag about the fact that we're illiterate or that we don't know our grammar. Somehow it's okay to say that about math, and I think that that's an interesting place to start off. Um, so I'm going to basically ask each of you to respond and, and, you know, what this particular anecdote brings up in you. Well, I, I don't have any real problem in adults like me not knowing <laughs> a lot of stuff. I, mean, I, I write a lot about history teaching, too, and, and we've got data going back to the 19th century showing that Americans never really were good at answering <laughs> history questions or civics questions, and that's something that we're going to live with. I think the importance of math is that it provides, A, some confidence uh, and someone going into that life, you can, you can deal with certain situations that you, you know, you have to make change, you have to, you know, work out a budget. It, it gives you a little more confidence to be able to do that if you've had some good math teaching. And secondly, there are, there's a smaller subset of people who, for whom math is going to be important in their lives. And I think teaching math, particularly teaching math to kids from disadvantaged uh, circumstances, is terribly important because we're wasting a lot of great talent by assuming kids like that can't really do very well. This book I wrote about the war against dummy math was a story of a, a college board program, one of the few that really, I think, made a great difference in our country for the good, um, that looked at the situation that was happening in high schools in the 90s in which most kids coming into high school were not given algebra um, in ninth grade, and um, many of them were ready for it. There was just a bias against kids being able to have that kind of experience, and once they had a pilot in several places and said, all right, you're going to require all ninth graders to take algebra in the ninth grade. It produced a revolution. More kids at the end of the seven years of that program were passing uh, algebra than had taken it in the ninth grade before the program started in those pilots. Um, I, my life was changed by a math teacher, Jaime Escalani, at, at Garfield High School in East Los Angeles, introduced me to what he was doing in his school with math. He was bringing kids from very poor circumstances and showing them they could do it if they gave it a little extra time and encouragement to the work, and they became um, really good calculus students in a school where you wouldn't expect to find anybody taking calculus. So I'm, I see math as both practical, we have to use it, but two, a way to sort of energize and give more choices to people in our society who have all the same, are just as smart as the kids we see in suburban schools, but haven't been given the opportunity, haven't been given the the, the real truth, which is with extra time and encouragement, they can do lots of things that people don't think they can do. I follow that. <laughs> um, obviously, as a math teacher, I feel math is really, really important. It is very frustrating as the math teacher when you're sitting with a conference, a child who's struggling, and the parent says, oh, well, I was never good at math. It's okay. Um, <laughs> and, and I hear that more often than I should. So um, I think that's one of the biggest struggles we have. Um, I'm really excited about the Common Core coming in. We've, State of California has been saying for the last 12 years that every student in eighth grade is, should take Algebra One, and it's a title. What does that mean? Conceptually, we need to meet the child where they're at and make the math meaningful and relevant, and that is not happening right now. Kids every May are assessed by a multiple choice test where you are given a question, and out of the four answers, you know one of them is correct. So it's really exciting right now to see what's going to be happening and transforming math. So it will mean something other than the abstract. So, <laughs> you know, from our perspective, coming from the workforce side, 
is that it's a little bit scary. I mean, you know, we work with post-secondary and institutions, and what we see is 72% of the students that come in, the, like, for instance, community college system, uh, are at the eighth grade level math. And so, and, but we know what the opportunities are out there in, to, in, in terms of them making high wages and having a sustainable job. That, that you know, you come in at an eighth grade level and, and you expect it to get to calculus. What are we doing different to get them there? When the industries are saying, you know, you have to get the calculus level if you want industries in the STEM careers, if you want to succeed. And so I just think that, that it's so important because it's a difference between making $40,000 a year or making $70,000, $80,000 a year and having a sustainable job in the future economy. In California alone, there's going to be 50,000 in the next five years, 50,000 new engineering jobs. Who's going to fill those jobs? You're going to have to know calculus. You're going to have to know math. And right now, three-quarters of Silicon Valley is, is, uh, is jobs are being filled by foreign workers. So, you know, I'm not the math expert, but I can just tell you the seriousness of all this in the future and opportunities in the future. If you look at the economy and where the jobs are, and honestly, I think if, it's not, if we're not going to focus, you know, on math, we're going to have a serious problem in the future. Mm-hmm. This, I think, is a good point uh, to talk a little bit about the other common question, the other common comment or question that people get, particularly math teachers, is, when am I ever going to use this? I certainly asked that of my high school math teachers, and I'm surprised they didn't smack me. Uh, when, <laughs> when I wrote the calculus book, uh, one of the best interview questions I got, that he opened with, calculus, make me care. You know? <laughs> um, so... And that was kind of the thrust of that infamous op-ed on is algebra necessary? There was this attitude that most students are not going to need this. And is that a correct assessment? I think that when I wrote my blog post, I made the argument that when we do not, when we assume that children aren't going to need this and don't teach them this very basic thing, we are essentially limiting their options before they know what they want to be when they grow up. We're taking away their choice. But there might be something to be said. Perhaps some students are not ready for it, and how do we handle that? I, I think that his op-ed raised an interesting question, even if I did not agree with his solution. So let's take that aspect and discuss. I, I mean, I, I feel that probably algebra is not necessary for most of us. I mean, I'm an I'm a education writer who has written a book about one math teacher, and, and uh, actually I've written a book about two or three math teachers, now that I think about it. Um, and I do an annual list rating high schools based on how challenging they are, and that requires, you know, arithmetic as far as I go. I don't really need algebra for any of that. Um, I think algebra plays the role of a challenging course in high school that requires students to actually buckle down and think about what they're doing and put some time into it. I mean, one of the great problems in American education is that we do not, particularly in high school, challenge students. Um, People in communities that, that, that my, in the high schools that my kids went to, very competitive high schools, you don't hear this because those kids are working very hard. They're doing four or five hours of homework a night, and that distorts the view of reporters like me who, until you look at the data, the University of Michigan Times studies show that the average teenager in the United States spends about 45 minutes a day on homework and spends more than two hours a day uh, watching TV, doing video games, that kind of thing. Um, we don't really think that kids have to work hard in high school. That's a cultural uh, assumption, except in that 5% of the population I'm talking about where are in very competitive high schools. And I think 
it's good to have something like algebra that tests a kid and requires that they're going to get through it and get out of high school, that they really buckle down, at least in this subject, and take something that's a little bit difficult because whatever they're going to do, they probably won't need algebra again, but they're going to have to face some kind of situation in college and in their lives in which they are facing a challenge that requires some attention and time. And if they don't get in the habit of giving attention and time to something like algebra, they're going to have, be at real disadvantage when they face the rest of life's challenges. And I think that you just hit on something that's uh, the Common Core is going through, but they have um, mathematical practices that as teachers we're supposed to be engaging the students in, and one of them is the puzzling and persevering, being able to stick with a problem until you get to the end. Um, I do see a lot of kids who won't do the homework. I know it's assigned, um, but they don't do that. It's just, I don't know, the, the name algebra, what mm -hmm. does it mean? You're saying you don't use algebra, but mm -hmm. you do. I mean, we, a lot of us use it every mm -hmm. day. We just don't know that we're doing algebra. Mm -hmm. And that's where we need to change the way that we teach so that kids can see that you're using the patterns. You're recognizing the structure in the mathematics or in just daily life, mm -hmm. that routine. That is algebra. In your calculus diaries, I mean, it's around you all the time. You're using it, but you don't realize you're using it. And that's where we need to make the, when you teach it abstractly, no one walks up to you and says, what is the slope of the equation y equals 5x plus 3? But if you were to ask someone, what is the rate for the price of gasoline, you know what that mm -hmm. is. And yet there's a connection and we don't see that because it's not taught. And life is not in a vacuum. We don't live it in a vacuum. So the subject should not be taught without some relevance. Right. What we see where, where students have a lot of success is when the math is applied to something and where they understand it. Like if it's engineering, it's applied to engineering, integrating engineering courses with, math, with the math courses. So there's an understanding of why they're understanding the math. What, why does this concept, how does it relate? You know, and I think, that's, I think that's important. I think it's to make it exciting. And, and, and the tradition, the way we're traditionally teaching math, it's just not working. In community colleges, there's like, you know, 30, 40% success rate. You know, and so how do you make it interesting for students? How, you know, and I, I think, and from what our experience is that, you make it more applied. You make them understand it. And you also, the long term, where they're going to be after four years, and what are they going to be doing, actually doing, and, and, and bringing industry also, in, 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 even in the high schools, or if not earlier, so they know what these jobs are all about. And, and then once you get catch them early, then I think there's that excitement and that interest. And I, I, I think if you can overcome that, then I think you'll see more and more success. I want to make a distinction here because you know, definitely I'm definitely a person who believes in finding like the context and and uh, for me I was definitely one of those people where you know the calculus came alive once I had a real world context and I realized oh I can turn my house hunting with my husband into a multi into a multivariable optimization mm -hmm. problem how cool <laughs> is that it turns out that's how physicists hunt for houses the rest of us are making lists right. of pros and cons and trying to find which one meets the best and they're turning it into a formula so he, he created a function for our house hunting um, and I, I'm very much a big fan of that, but I think that there's a dark side, a flip side to that. It can slip into what I like to call sort of like the commodification of knowledge and education, where if, it's, if we can't prove that it's good for something, then we don't need to learn it. And certainly a physicist would argue that the abstraction, um, the thing that we find so hard, people like me find so difficult, is that abstraction. But it is the thing that makes us a civilized society. I think Nick Warner, who's a string theorist at USC, argued in the Huffington Post that, you know, 
certain, you know, potent powers might wish the people to be ignorant of abstraction because a populace that cannot think in abstractions can be lied to more easily and deceived more easily. So are we dumbing it down too much? You know, are we doing too great a disservice? Am I wrong in thinking that we need to find these real-world connections, what I call that mimetic moment, where we go, oh, yes, this abstraction fits here? Or is that a good way to teach it? Are, they, are we going to learn the abstraction by doing that, or are we merely going to commodify? I mean, I'd love to hear Sarah on that question, because mm -hmm. we, we were talking, <laughs> and, you know, she teaches algebra and, and geometry, but what her real specialty, and the kind of thing we don't find often in schools, is she's really good at teaching kids who don't care about this subject, who aren't on the fast track at, uh, in Irvine to go to, you know, to University High and be in calculus by junior year. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering, one, A, how do you do that? And two, what have we been doing wrong? Why aren't, why aren't our kids better at math? And, and are the teachers in some way to blame? And in what way? What are they doing wrong? <laughs> Thanks, just put me on the spot there. Um, She's not God. speaking on behalf of the district. I just want to make that sure. <laughs> um, these are her personal opinions. Exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of things that, that oh gosh, that's potent. Um, we have kids in every different type of learning. So you have kids who don't like math, and they need to be taught in a different way than the kids who like math. And there are certain type pr proportion of our mm -hmm. society who will go on and need the abstraction and thrive on it and love that. Mm -hmm. And those kids are great, and they don't have a problem. They've been succeeding, and that's fine. And they what become do, physicists. Yeah. <laughs> what do we do with the 25% of the kids who are struggling and trying? We call them the fra mathematically fragile students, the students who might potentially not even graduate from high school because you have to finish Algebra 1, pass the CASI, and have two years of math. So if you pass Algebra 1 in a single year, now what? Are they going to be able to handle that logic of, of geometry, which is another hurdle? So... What do you do? And that's where we need to acknowledge that there's different ways of learning. And there's not a one-size-fits-all method that's going to work for Irvine Unified, Santa Ana Unified, LA Unified, even within LA Unified, all the different areas. So, Okay, so let, let me stop you right there. I agree with you 100%. I made that point in my book, in the epilogue, by saying I don't have an answer for this. That being the case, how can we possibly devise a curriculum that takes that into account? When you've got an overworked math teacher, this is you, <laughs> with like 30 students, they're all at different 30? levels, they all, yeah. I'm being kind. I wish. <laughs> um, is it even possible? You know, you've got individual learning styles, but the need for a universal core curriculum. How do you get those to mesh? What I, if I could rule the world, I told you that earlier, um, I would like to have the ability to actually group students by where they are, for so long, they've been just, you know, well, we're going to teach our fourth grade math. It's very apparent in eighth grade where they need to be. And we have an honors geometry. We have an algebra one. We actually need two levels of algebra one. One would be for the kids who are going to be pursuing probably higher level fields that would involve some mathematics. You have the algebra one for the kids who are grade level, but maybe not going to be pursuing a science field, but maybe they will. Mm -hmm. They still need that exposure. And then you still need the class that's going to fill in those holes. These kids that we went so fast from fourth grade through sixth grade, they don't understand fractions. They don't understand proportional reasoning. They can't balance a budget. They certainly don't understand the idea of the interest rates when you're borrowing money. An eighth grader won't, but you know, 
how much of a problem is our economy today because people are borrowing money that they don't understand how to pay it back. And, and they it, don't understand compound interest. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and it's something that, why are we teaching it to a kid who's 12 years old? <laughs> they're not going to understand it, but it's only taught when they're in 12, at 12. So when they could maybe understand it at 16, 17, it's not considered useful. Mm -hmm. I, we're backwards in the way we teach things. So, Kaz, I'm going to direct a, a similar question to you because your emphasis is on the workforce. Mm -hmm. And we're talking here about kids having different learning styles. You want to balance that with what, is the, what do they need to know, what is the minimum they need to know in terms of their mathematical training to make sure that they still have choice and options in their career? Um, because I know a lot of kids, I certainly was, not, you know, was one of those, don't know what they want to be until generally their third or fourth year of college sometimes. Right. And sometimes even later. Some of us come to math very late. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and this is another danger, that right. we dumb it down so much that we end up doing our students a disservice in taking away their choice, particularly if they come from a disadvantaged right. family or background. I, I think that underestimating uh, kids is, a, is the biggest mistake, but I unfortunately see that in the system. And I, I think that, you know, the reality, educating them on the realities of, of you know, how important math is for their future and, and for them to be part of a, a, a striving economy and be part of the economy is, is important. And I think it starts very early. Uh, and I, I think that, uh, this, you know, kids deserve uh, to have uh, early on, you know, as, as, like I said, they're coming even at an eighth grade math level into a community college, that they deserve a curriculum that not only educates them on the math skills, but also engages them and, and makes them understand, again, you know, what are the opportunities in the future? And I just think there's not enough of that. Uh, there is in community college system, I think, this, this mentality sometimes of, uh, you know, I, I'm happy with my 30% success rate. <laughs> and, and everyone else just falls out. And, and I guess that's the success rate that, you know, that they're they're comfortable with. Uh, that's one thing good about budget cuts. You have some leverage when you do bring money to the table mm -hmm. to make them think differently and to be more creative. And what we've found is that when they are more creative and they provide all the support services that a student needs, and that calls financial support, that calls uh, for disadvantaged youth and, uh, and disadvantaged students, it's, it's really the social support as well. And having that around them and, and intensive tutoring and, and what we call student support specialists that work with them uh, throughout the, the semesters so that if they are kind of feeling like they're dropping out or they're not doing so well and they want to drop out, this person comes and helps them and engages them and ensure that there's tutoring for them and works with the faculty directly. Uh, the traditional way for these types, these students, are not, it's just not working. So we, we try to do something that's very different and make sure they get a lot more support. Yeah, but the problem is we need to get that support earlier. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and that's, if we're doing that in the junior college, it's not going we need to make that impact when they're younger. And I was having a conversation on the drive up here that, you know, for reading, if a child can't read, that's identified in first grade. And we have all sorts of reading programs. But the math remediation doesn't start until fifth grade, fourth mm -hmm. grade, maybe if you're lucky. So these kids are starting so far behind and we have no way to catch them up. And there's so many different facets. I mean, I taught in Santa Ana High School, and I had a, a class, started the year with 36 students, ended the year with 36 students, six of them were the same. That was how much turnover there was between that. So how do you, 
make a meaningful curriculum. I mean, the state says you've got to cover this. We're going to publish your scores and you're going to be judged on how the students do, but you have to make it meaningful. <laughs> it's just overwhelming. You can't mm -hmm. possibly do all the different things that you're being asked to now, do. Now, I don't know if this would work, but we do, what we do is we do summer engineering institutes. We do things in the summer, you know, and, and what we do is we put them in internships. So they're totally being engaged in, in, in some type of math or, or, or hands-on projects during the summer. So, you know, so I don't, you can convince the parents of a 12-year-old that they're going to give up their summer so that their well, child who's behind in school because the parents didn't ever really put the time into helping them. Well, I'm not here to convince them. <laughs> I mean, when you, when you look at what's happening in inner-city schools that have succeeded, uh, you see a different perspective that math is actually a low-hanging fruit, that math is something that you learn almost exclusively in school, Teachers have great influence over what you're going to learn and get you up to a new level. Uh, reading and, and writing is different because you're getting a lot of stuff from, from your community and that slows you down. So you look at the, at the, the uh, test scores from places like the KIPP schools, which are the best inner city schools we have in raising kids to a new level, and their math scores go very quickly, very high. Reading scores are much more difficult to get up, and that's because they have found a way, the, the, the two math um, the two math teachers who started KIPP learned from a woman named Harriet Ball who grew up in the Houston ghetto and had a way of clicking on with games and, and competitions and songs and all kinds of ways to teach math that really click with kids. And that, that's spreading to schools all over the country. And we see our math scores actually, you know, in fourth grade in the United States are pretty good. It's still reading, it's tough. So this should be something that we should be able to do and do with every kid. Mm -hmm. We haven't gotten to that level yet. All right. I wanted to touch on something that, that you were talking about, which is the social support network, mm -hmm. because I, that is something that doesn't often get talked about, particularly with the disadvantaged uh, kids, kids from a lower income level. Mm -hmm. um, I come from a blue collar family. My dad was the first member of his family mm -hmm. to go to college. And I see this over and over again with these kids, even those that are very bright and want to change their lives, at some point they start to get pushback. They don't always have the support network. Often they have to work their way through. They have right. family obligations. Sometimes their families start to resent them. Oh, you think you're better than us. Right. Um, you make us feel stupid. These are all mm -hmm. things that you know, right. they hear. They have challenges and disadvantages that, that culturally and socially that other students don't have. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is often put on the, uh, on the math teacher to have to solve. If you talk to right. some of these inner city math teachers, I remember talking to one guy, he said, you know, I'm trying to find one of my students a place to sleep for the night right. because she got kicked out of her house. Somewhere along the line, I have to teach her math, and I don't know when I'm going to do that. Right. So maybe you and, uh, and Sarah can address that challenge. Yeah, and we see that all the time in our programs. And I think that, you know, it's not the responsibility, we think, of the faculty to handle that. It's, the, you know, in our programs, what we have is a social uh, student support specialist that works with the students dealing with those issues uh, on a daily basis. And we know those issues come up all the time. And so one way that we help, you know, we, we get federal, we use federal and state and foundation funding to support them financially through this. And I think that relieves, relieves a lot of pressure from the family as well. But having that kind of support around with them from a day, day to day where, where they have somebody to go to that's not the faculty uh, really helps and, and, and supports them, you know, with any issues that they may have. It could be childcare, it could be transportation, it could be housing or whatever it may be. Food, we find food, you know, as an issue and, and we try to make sure we can support them in that way as well. So. It's hard. I don't know <clears throat> where, how you can get the 
um, communities more involved. Um, I've done a lot of work with individual students, but if I have 187 students that I'm teaching math to, trying to make that connection, I mean, I, you can reach so many of them. Mm -hmm. um, I had one student where exactly what you said, her parent, her mother was furious with her for wanting to finish high school and kept telling her, why can't you be more like your sister who was two years younger but pregnant? <laughs> and, you know, it, I ended up having to, we opened a bank account together because her mother kept raiding her account because she had a job. Um, it's just, you know, it, there's not enough support for these kids who are trying to make mm -hmm. it, want to get an education, want to do something more. And, um, you know, we've, we've done the food drives right. and we have, you know, I've, I had my, my children come with me to deliver the food baskets and so that they could see, you know, what, what it was like. But there's just, we need to get the community to support the schools, come in and provide the tutoring right. and be there. I, I, when I taught in Santa Ana, we had a, a school that had no doors. It was an open class, mm -hmm. open setting. So we couldn't open up afterwards. So the kids had to leave. They had no place to go do homework. So we had found a, a community outreach group that had actually purchased a um, or rented a an apartment in one of the complexes that they set up set up as a study hall. But then, as you try to get the the college kids to come in, they're not always the most responsible. So someone wouldn't always be there. Mm -hmm. So I, I, it's a, a large issue. You know, it's yeah, brand. We, what's the right. reality? It, you know, one is uh, educating the parents as well. So what we do is in, in during, you know, we have orientations. We invite the parents, the family, everyone comes so they can also understand, you know, what, what, what the program's all about. Uh, but it is, it is, it is difficult to, uh, you know, it is a challenge. I can't even imagine when you have several hundred and whatever, 26 students at the same time, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge and, and educating the community, educating the families, uh, you know, I think, but what we do is we do, we invite them to the orientation so they understand what the opportunities are, mm -hmm. you know, in the future and, and what the positive opportunities are for the whole family as well. You know, what we see is, you know, it's a generational thing, you know, once, once you know, one, one child succeeds, then the next one follows. And so it's just getting that one over the hump. So. Yeah. Uh, Jay, I want to get some of your perspective on this because you've been covering education for so long. Um, does it seem, perhaps, that we've been talking about these issues for decades and we keep coming up with what we think is going to work, we keep revising the curriculum, we come up with new plans, we set higher standards, we lower standards, we do all these various things, and yet somehow we still have this problem. Um, is that a wrong well, impression? You're going to get a very optimistic answer from me. I'm one of those... My wife calls me the Pollyanna from hell. <laughs> I, I always see it. And, and I think if you think about education in terms of centuries rather than what happened last year, you can see that the, the species has gotten each century further along toward um, more enlightenment, more knowledge, and our whole society is raised up to a new level. And that's partially because our schools have gotten better. Um, I've, if you look at what has happened to American schools in the last... Uh, since World War II, uh, we've had definite improvements. More kids are going, or we, we now have the highest um, graduation level in high schools that we've had since, since that period during the Vietnam War when a lot of people were staying in high school rather than to go into the Army. Um, and we have, and test scores have come up, uh, if you want to use that as a measurement. And the myth of college for everybody which people can argue about as being wrong in some respects, uh, has caught hold all the way up the side from the very top, which is the very poorest people. 
And that is a huge motivator for the kind of schools that I focus on, inner city schools that are doing a great job in raising kids' uh, achievement because that really grabs everybody. So I think the, the, kind of, the interest in, in this kind of discussion means that we're all pointing in the same direction, we're all looking for ways, and, and indeed, we now have, uh, because of Teach for America and other programs like that, some of our very best and brightest and most energetic uh, college students coming out and going immediately into schools and learning what it is like to teach in a school, and many of them becoming very good teachers. Um, uh, that program has problems, as do all of us. We have all kinds of problems in our schools, but if you look at the big picture, each generation we've gotten better, and I think there's lots to hope for now. Can you clarify for me when, when you're talking about the test scores have gone up, because that's actually at odds with what I often hear. What, what is the context for that? I mean, test scores are abysmal compared to other, other developed countries. So are we talking just us in terms historically? Well, actually, they're not abysmal compared to other countries. If, uh, I mean, people who have looked at the international tests and sort of tried to work out, for instance, the international tests in Europe, those schools look better because their mix of, of uh, socioeconomic groups is very different. We have a higher percentage of low-income kids in this country. And if you compared on each level, our low-income kids are doing about as well as theirs, if you look at it, it's pretty close. Um, over, over, generationally, uh, the long-term NAEP shows that fourth graders have gotten measurably better, eighth graders a little bit. Uh, it's, it's high schoolers that are the problem in the, in the last 30 years in, in raised achievement, so that's a real problem, something I write a lot about. But uh, if you look at simply uh, the nature of what's being taught now, I mean, there's a lot more kids taking AP and IB courses in high school, which is something that didn't have in my generation, and that shows some progress, even though we've hit a, a bump here over the last century, we're doing very well. Okay. Either of you agree or disagree with his analysis of the statistics <laughs> and the, on the test scores? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> I agree with him. Okay. I know um, I had a, a friend who taught in England, and one of the things that she had mentioned was that when they did this testing, they're very selective as to who gets tested and what is reported. And I know when I've seen our students that have been part of the testing, it's been random. So I think that we're much more of a heterogeneous group as a country. We've got people from all over the world. So our test scores may not c keep up with some of the other countries, but I think in general, you know, our scores are going, are, we are increasing. And as he said, we do have so many more kids taking the AP classes. Flip side, they're taking it. Are they doing as well as, you know, when it used to only be 10% of the society, they would take it and get fours and fives. Now we have 50%, but are we... 50% are taking it, but are they scoring well? Well, we have a lot more kids getting fours and fives, the raw numbers. Mm -hmm. A lot more kids' lives are being changed by succeeding in a college course. So the percentages, you know, are a different story, but the total raw number is the one I think it's best to focus on when you're looking at that. Because the, the whole point of Andrew Hacker's infamous op-ed on Is Algebra <laughs> Necessary was that this is the big thing that causes kids to drop out of high school and that therefore algebra is bad and we should get I mean, there's just no data <laughs> that shows that. Yeah. I mean, it, we, we've had a lot of, of states go to make algebra a mm -hmm. graduation requirement. There is no data showing that that has caused more kids to drop out. And as, as I just said, the latest data shows that we have fewer dropouts now mm -hmm. than we've had in a very long time. But have the standards been lowered? Oh, well, I mean... There's a lot it, of what-ifs there. Yeah, well, I mean, it just... I don't know. I, I, we, we used to not require kids to take algebra, and they got out of high school. Now we actually... Well, I, I just know I've been teaching algebra for 
20 years. And if I look at what I taught 10 years ago compared to what I teach now, it's a lot easier now mm -hmm. than it was. There's a lot more thinking, a lot more in-depth material. And now it's just, here's a skill. This is how you do it. Now do it. And I mean, it just, it's very... Um, well, that, that was a problem in my book about the change because even while we were moving more kids into algebra at this time when they changed, uh, they killed dummy math, there were at that time no tests to show how much they were learning. So that's a good point. But when you're looking at IB and AP, those are courses that are written, uh, the final exam is written and graded by independent experts. So you cannot dumb down that program. The people who are designing it are not ha don't have anything to do with these kids. They keep the standard high because of all kinds of data showing what they were doing years before. So if, if we have twice as many kids passing AP tests now as we did 10 years ago, which is exactly what has happened, twice as many passing, that's a big deal. Yeah. And algebra is not an AP class. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when you right. look at that one, I know when I fill out recommendations for students that are trying to apply to private schools all over the country, the, on their form, what math class are they in, they have three different levels of algebra. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, algebra is just a name. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean anything right. until you look at the context of what was taught. So there's, you know, the beginning level, mi middle level, and are you teaching quadratics and rational expressions? That's the big one. Do you get to rational expressions? Mm -hmm. And that determines what level of algebra it really is. I mean, according to the private schools. So I, it just... Mm -hmm. You know, a, a yeah. rose is a rose. <laughs> from, from an industry perspective, you know, does algebra make you a better civil engineer or mechanical engineer? And, you know, and I think that, you know, from hearing from industry, yes, but some industry, like in the construction industry, you'll say, well, if you're a mechanical engineer, you never use calculus. So, you know, you can, you know. Or so I, they think. <laughs> so they think, exactly. So, you know, I, but from what we hear, you know, uh, looking ahead, if, if, you know, algebra is, uh, I think it's an important, and that's what we hear from industry. So. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about the, the, uh, the new curriculum that you were talking about that you're so excited about. Uh, <laughs> well, why just, are you excited about I'm it? I'm excited because right now the state of California says every eighth grader needs to be in Algebra 1. And mm. most of us, when we were in school, you took it in ninth grade. So it's been pushed back a year. And not everybody's ready to learn abstract thinking at 13 years old. So I'm excited that my students can now have a class that they can be proud of. At this point, the students that I teach are the ones who did not qualify for Algebra 1, and they think they're stupid. And they feel bad about themselves, and they'll tell me, oh, well, I'm stupid. I'm not going to do anything. And I, I hate hearing a 13-year-old tell me that they're already done and that their paths have already been set. So I'm excited that there's going to be more options for these kids who math isn't a strength, but they're more than capable students and with some guidance and some you know, interesting teaching, better teaching, I don't know, they'll be able to do more. So that's where I just feel the, the Common Core brings it back that up through eighth grade, we're setting the foundation. And then once you've got a solid foundation, you can take the other classes. I do think math is very important. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a math teacher. <laughs> um, but I just think how we present it, when it's presented, you have to, the kids have to be ready. Well, and I think they have to understand why they're taking it and where it can take them. And this is where I think your work um, is right. very helpful in helping them visualize, oh, I can be this. Mm -hmm. I can be this. You know, I, I think especially when, you, when it comes to, you know, disadvantaged uh, youngsters or people from right. poor economic backgrounds, they don't learn to think like that. They don't have those role models, and it has never occurred to them that they might one day 
be a mechanical engineer. Mm -hmm. I did not even know science writing was an option until right. I was in my 20s. And by then it was too late. I had to like do all these remedial <laughs> physics mm -hmm. and math work. Um, so I think that's important. Mm -hmm. And it's the partnerships you build. I mean, we, we build with NASA, you know, partnerships. So we take them to NASA and, and, and they learn more about aerospace and how does a math, you know, uh, how, how does it, and they, we, they talk to astronauts and they, they learn of, you know, how, why am I an astronaut and what did I learn? What do I need to learn to be an astronaut? And, you know, how does the uh, a rocket get to point A to point B? And, and, you know, we do bottle rocket exercises and, you know, we do make a bridge and, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think that makes them engaging and that makes them understand and relate how their math uh, uh, relates to their future careers. So. Right. And it's interesting that make a bridge, build a bridge is, is a very common activity. And mm -hmm. I know my son did it when he was in fourth grade. There was no math to it. At, at that point, at that level, the right. kids just took their popsicle sticks and put it together or their <laughs> toothpick bridges. But then when you try to add anything more when they're a little bit older, they say, well, we've already done that. Mm -hmm. And then it's really hard to get them back in. So that's one of the other things that I see happening a lot is that a great idea comes down from you know, the real world application and it keeps getting pushed down and done when the kids aren't ready to learn anything from it. And then the power's gone. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, I don't know if anyone in here mm -hmm. is a boys trying to find books that my sons will read <laughs> and you finally find a great book and you save it so i have a son who's 20 and one who's 12 so my 20 year old when he was younger liked hoot and some of the other ones that came out and as soon as i found a good book it got turned into a movie and my younger one wouldn't read it <laughs> i can just see the movie so it just it, it's pervasive but it just it's so hard to find good activities that haven't been introduced too early they better watch the right version of the Scarlet Letter. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> the Demi Moore one was not true to the book. Um, <laughs> um, we have, I, I want to wrap this up before we open it up for questions, but I want to, I know at least two of you have children and you've brought up uh, your children and I know that um, you yourself as a teacher have been able to learn things ab about your profession from having the experience of watching your own children deal with these things and I'm sure you have as well. I don't know about you. <laughs> I don't have any children, so I can't. You might have nieces and nephews as I do. <laughs> I do. Um, so, what you know you live with it you know what do you learn from your own children or your nieces and nephews you know around you about how they learn math how they approach it and the different styles of learning and that sort of thing. well I think I mean what I've learned is the power of great teachers mm -hmm. I mean it, it I had some good teachers but my kids reflected back very quickly the people in their classrooms who were really inspiring them getting them excited to get back into the classroom and the few that were doing quite the opposite uh, <laughs> And I, I think appreciating that means that we should be very careful when we're thinking about a school to look for the places that appear to have the best teachers. And we, we encounter a situation where a teacher isn't doing very well, we should confront it. Um, I write a lot about misunderstandings between schools and parents because, you know, schools are often too protective of teachers who aren't carrying their load. So it's important for us to focus on the quality of teaching, that's, that's the end-all and be-all as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, it's been very interesting watching my children because they're both very, very different in personality and, and their learning styles. And my older one it was just a sponge and absorbed everything and was very interested. I could give him activities about why things would happen and he was very curious. And my younger one is just, just tell me what to do. Give me the formula and I'm just going to cut to the chase, get the answer and I'm done. So it's just very, very interesting to see that. And um, 
you know, as I'm working in the classroom, I, I run it by my, my seventh grader. I'll say, okay, well, what do you think about this? He's like, don't bother. I, we don't care. So <laughs> it's a very interesting perspective to see a child who loved math and embraced it and loved the patterns and tried to find all the different, well, what about this? And the different ways that you could apply things. And someone who's successful but not interested. Well, my nieces and nephews are... Uh they know how to count. They're very young, and, and <laughs> they can ask Uncle Cass for money all the time. So they know how to count that and exactly what to ask for. And the interest rates, too, in the bank. So it's, it's a little scary. But, uh, I, you know, I tell my brothers, like, always get them to start early. You know, uh, you know toys, for instance, like, uh, you know, discovery toys, you know, to make them start early on learning and... and and uh, rather than just, you know, here's a car, you know, just, just to get them started really early and, and keep telling them the importance of math. And, you know, everyone tends to read to their children all the time, but they don't really do math with them. And so, but start early and get them, you know, uh, get them fixated in math so early. And that's one of the things I did all the time with my older one, and I try to do more with my younger, but... Um, just as we're driving anywhere, the mental math games. We started with Guess My Number when they were four years old, and I've got a number between zero and ten, and then we moved very quickly into the negatives. So my children understood before they were taught it in elementary school how negative numbers worked, and that ne negative six was smaller than negative two, mm -hmm. and being able to visualize on a number line, and right. that was really, really big. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's something that every, every parent just capturing that, that five-minute drive as you're going to soccer practice, playing these mental math games, taking 10% and give them numbers like 38 and 27 and so that they're getting the decimals and beginning to think. And you start with 10%, 20%, and then go to 15% and talk about how if I can find 10%, 5% is just half of that, and then add them together for 15%. Mm -hmm. And you can do that with seven-year-olds, and it just sets them on a path for success. Excellent. I want to open it up for questions. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for. Hi, my name is Arlene Weisbach, and I'm a retired math math teacher. And I have a two-part question. The first part is: in our schools, we go K through six. The child is with one teacher all day. This teacher is supposed to be an expert in all the different subjects. <laughs> I don't understand why we've never introduced a system where we have specialists teaching math to younger kids. Uh, and the second part of my question is, and related to this, is why is the calculator introduced so early to kids? Why do kids push buttons and think they're going to get an answer and never understand where that answer came from? When I was teaching, one thing I wanted to introduce was put a big sign on top of my room, you are now entering the no calculator zone. It seems so sensible to me, and I don't understand why it's not being done. So I agree. I've been pushing to have a math specialist, at least in the upper elementary. We have a science specialist. I'm not sure why we don't have a math specialist. We have reading specialists. I, I think it's silly that we don't introduce it. Um, I agree with the calculators. They're, the kids need to be taught how to use them, but if they don't understand what a reasonable answer is, the calculator is only as good as the person in putting the information. So if you don't know, I've been working with Pythagorean theorem last week, and if my students don't know what the square root of 58 should be close to, they'll push, push buttons and get an answer and have no idea if it's right. Over here on your right. All right. Are you going to hold? 
<laughs> Steve Rangan. Uh, my question goes to Jay. Uh, one thing I haven't heard tonight is the fact that mathematics are more than mathematics. You may never, ever use algebra. You may never get to geometry. I find that difficult to believe. You may never get to calculus in your job. But the thing that concerns me is the fact that you haven't approached the psychological standpoint, the ability to understand other areas of life. And without math, you're going to have a very difficult time. Not only as, as a challenge that one should overcome as one is going to have a challenge, but also it obviously gives you a sense of the world in a way that's very modern and important, and we need kids to appreciate it just as the way you said it. Hi, my name is uh, Ken Murray. I'm a physician. Um, I'm sure I took something like 10 courses in calculus in, in college in preparation for medical school, and I seriously doubt that I've done differential equations since then. <laughs> However, there is no doubt that calculus um, is what we use to describe the living world. Mm -hmm. And you can't understand or describe it without an understanding of calculus. And I think all the different disciplines in math do the same thing. So I'm wondering your thought about the concept I've always had is that math is the language of science that we need to have to be able to understand and mm -hmm. to do science. And without it, it's just like we're going to a foreign country without any grasp of the language in trying to manage. Your thoughts on that? Well, I agree completely, and that's part of my frustration is that there's no, no support. Math doesn't have the bang that some of the other subjects do. So we get a lot of uh, companies that will invest money in our science classes and provide enrichment activities, but math is left behind. And to me, if you don't have strong math skills, that's, like you said, the language. It's the alphabet of science. So you let's wanna... get out there. Come on, you guys. Let's <laughs> well, get added, more added support NASA, for math. Get the Land Rover on Mars. I mean, I, really, was there no math? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, just, I mean, this is not really, you know, we have to dissect this. Was there no math in doing that? Mm -hmm. Ask NASA. So, you know, I think that's just an example of how important math is to science, to medicine. And I think we should, you know, take that in consideration. Well, also, I think to, to reasoning, to, to uh, you know, b because it's not just whether or not you do a different, use a differential equation in your job, mm -hmm. um, right? It's, it brings something else, you know, a certain rigor to one's thinking, a certain ability to frame problems in order exactly. to solve yeah. them yeah. and yeah. things Absolutely. like that. Um, but how, that's the foundation, how you start. You know, exactly. Right? You so know. that's the foundation of how you start. So... You start with that foundation, and then everything comes after, so. I'm Harry Lieberman. I'm a pediatrician. Uh, three children, two of whom were great at math. The other one, it was like, and oh, it was terrible. But she got through it. Uh, my question to you is, really, nobody has mentioned computer-used uh, assisted learning. Uh, are you using it? it? Does it work as well in math as in other things? And if not, why not? Well, I can speak to the data. So far, the data don't show that... Can, that Teaching computers and how to use computers certainly does make you better at using computers, but there's no data that shows that it makes you a better math student, a better history student. It doesn't appear, so far affect significantly achievement in, in subjects other than knowing how to use a computer. Uh, and I get, you know, lots of pitches from people saying I've got the thing that's going to change education, but so far there's a, the, there's a new book by a 
professor at Stanford, Larry Cuban, who looks at the whole change of teaching aspects and what has been produced by particularly computers in classrooms, and he sees very little there that has changed the way we teach or has brought kids to a new level of understanding. Um, I've used several different programs in the classroom trying to help remediate. Within the classroom, it's hard to find the time because we have to share the computer lab with the other classes and English teachers get mad because they have to use the lab to do their essays. And so that's one of the constraints, reality. Um, but the other one is that it's just, it's very hard to find a program that will really meet the needs. There's a lot of games and the kids have fun, but they're not necessarily building any skills from that. So um, I've been recommending a lot of my students to the Khan Academy, which does have a lot of knowledge spaces where the kids can go in and take a particular topic and they have assessments. I just can't force the kids to do it and I can't get that. I, I keep trying to find ways to be able to get laptops in the classroom with 38 students and trying to make sure you can get enough wireless access. There's just the actual physicality of it is, is hard. Hi, um, I'm Haley Boyan. I teach a STEM lab at a middle school in downtown LA. Um, my question is, we hear a lot about writing across the curriculum and the importance of developing that literacy, but what do you guys think the place is for math across the curriculum and de developing numeracy? Do you think math has a place in other subjects, classrooms? I know we talked about science a little bit. Obviously, as a math teacher, I would love to see it used more. I do work a lot with my science teachers and how to, when are they teaching equations so that I can make sure we're going, you know, using those together. I'll teach my literal equation unit when they're doing their distance rate and time or the mass and volume. So, you know, we try to do that a lot. The English isn't really interested in working with me and finding a way because most of the English teachers will tell me that they didn't like math when they were in school. And I'm very, very sorry about that because I actually agree with you. Um, I'm an English major, humanities person, became a journalist. Absolutely, you should be teaching mathematical concepts at the very least. It's definitely part of history, of math, of writing, of reporting. Anytime you're, particularly in this modern age, there's going to be a mathematical or science component to everything you do, pretty much. Um, mm -hmm. whether you realize it or not. And it may not be having to solve a differential equation, but you're going to have to understand what it is and how to think like a math or mathematician or a scientist. Mm -hmm. And if you can't think like that, then you aren't going to write well. You aren't going to understand you know, certain trends in history. You aren't going to understand statistics. You're not going to understand population growth or economics. You're not going to understand anything, mm -hmm. including how your iPod works. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, as a gate coordinator, we've had a, the... Um, Kaplan, I keep drawing a blank on the first name, but there's the, the different ways, like, th you know, think different perspectives and being able to look at it from a different, um, the professionals, how is it used in other fields? So I've really tried to get our English teachers or humanities teachers to look at bringing it in as you, you know, we're saying the, the statistics side at, at the very least. Very least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is the cutbacks, is the poverty, is the inequality of resources in our society relevant to talking about math phobia and math anxiety? The figures nationally are that class sizes were much larger in the 50s mm -hmm. than they are now. I mean, I looked at Maybe my... Maybe in other states. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm talking about the whole country. Uh, uh, indeed, my sixth grade class in, in, at Laurel School in San Mateo, California in 1957 had 36 kids. And the average classroom now in the United States is about 24 kids. Um, as far as money being spent, we're spending a lot more per kid on education than we did before. We're spending 
a lot more on, on low-income kids in education than we did before. And some of that is having an effect, but the tie between throwing money at this particular problem doesn't seem to be helping it as much as we would like it to. Right, I think that you know, st community college students, you know, they access their, their Pell Grants, and that's normally not enough. That just pays for your, your, your classes, but for the faculty to really to do a good job and have the resources, uh, they have to be very creative in looking at outside funding beyond what they're receiving from, from the state. Uh, and so, uh, well, we, you know, I think that from our programs that we've worked with, it's the resources that we bring or outside resources, grant funding, to support the students and provide extra tutoring or being able to do workshops, uh, you know, paying the university for your university to come in and, and, and do, uh, do workshops and, you know, some hands-on training. So, uh, you know, it is, um, you know, there's just not enough resources there, I think, in community colleges that provide math courses to do things that are creative enough unless you're creative yourself and you go, you go outside, outside the box to raise money. Uh, I think that the... Uh in California, there's, I don't know, this is LA, I, I, any teachers out here have a class with 24 students? So, I mean, I know we've got our honors geometry are at 48 apiece. Um, our algebra is at 36 as a class average. We've got classes of 42 and one down to 34. Um, so I, I don't, but I would say that the ratio of math phobic hasn't changed. I don't think the class size has affected whether or not people, their approach mm -hmm. to math. Hi, my name is Tyler E. Carib, and I attend Pressman Academy. Uh, earlier, I heard you guys mention, just as an example, that what happens is the education that children receive when they're younger, in first, second, third grade, affects them and how they learn in junior high and high school. So my question to you is, if you could go back in time and meet the kindergarten, first grade teachers of your current classroom, what would you tell them to do differently that would affect their learning today? Good question. <laughs> I'm going to leave my seat and give it to him. <laughs> you know, I teach three different levels of eighth grade, so I would say that you know, my high-level students that are performing are doing well. It's the kids that are struggling that don't have the foundations. They don't know, they won't take notes in class, they won't do their homework. So I don't know where that started, but that would be where I think we, we need to make sure that we don't allow these kids to fall through the cracks. So if a student in third grade doesn't know their times tables, then something needs to be done to make sure that that practice is given and they learn it. Um, really make sure that the kids understand how a number line works and how the adding and subtracting works on a number line. There's been some uh, recent studies about students that struggle in mathematics for middle school. One of the, the most effective ways to remediate and pull those kids back up is through number lines and reasoning with number lines. Thank you so much.